Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is our year-end episode where we sum up the year that was and we make more or less grounded predictions about the year to come. <laughs> with me, Nicholas Baird Lumblad, and... And with me, Richard Allen. Brilliant. So uh, it was quite a year, wasn't it? Uh, looking back at 2023, it feels as if, uh, you know, at least in some areas, we got we got more than the year we had expected. So what is what are your three big things for 2023 that you think we should, when we write the history of this year, that we should uh, focus on? Yeah, I mean, first we need to look at regulation. So this is the year that the sort of long-discussed regulation of the really sort of social media at the leading edge, but social media plus some sort of family of big internet platforms, it actually landed in Europe and the UK. We could talk about the geographical extent later. So, so the, the year in which regulation was sort of signed off in Europe and the UK for, for those big platforms, probably the first big thing. Uh, second thing which I saw is unresolved, but where there's been a lot of action this year is around competition cases, sort of going in all yeah. sorts of different directions, but competition authorities really you know taking on tech companies and starting to um i'll use the word interfere with mergers shall we say in a way <laughs> that that wasn't happening until this year i think in any meaningful way and then the third big issue is the, is the whole ai debate where i would say this you know that's been top of the talking agenda i there hasn't i think there's been a lot less action i know the eu's just sort of finalizing its ai acts but i think we're very much in the foothills of actual ai regulation but it's probably been the the tech policy issue that's been most talked about this year yeah let's double click on that one because i agree my three are, are similar i think uh sort of the year of 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 setting out ai policy as a landscape and then i also think it's notable that that in the background the the collapse of crypto has continued and you know the 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 binance deals the the ongoing trial uh, around sam bankman fried and there's been so much there that it makes crypto feel like it's it's slightly derailed from from being this sort of web 3.0 big promise that people did believe it was a, a year and a half ago. And uh, then the third thing for me is is still geopolitics. You know, the Ukraine mm -hmm. war, what's happening there, uh, the horrors in Gaza and Israel and the overall relationship between US and China, sort of re the return of geopolitics as a determinant in a lot of the mm -hmm. tech policy discussions and uh, how it sort of impacts everything from how we think about misinformation to how we think about export control. So that feels like a big deal as well. Yeah, so much to go out there. <laughs> yes, but let's, let's start with AI because, you know, I, I would argue, yeah. here, here's an observation for you. I would argue that if you were to ask me what year did we get a, a internet policy, then, then I would be hard-pressed to give you a year. I would say it's the 90s, really, from, mm. you know, the 1990 to 2002. Five, there's a lot of things happening that set out the, the overall landscape for internet policy. But if you were to ask me the same about AI, I would almost, there's a slight, slight exaggeration there, but I would almost be comfortable saying, well, 2023 is when we set out the basics of the frameworks that we thought we would need with the executive order, with the AI Act, with the G7 principles, with the White House commitments, with the sectoral approach in the UK, with the UK AI safety summit. It's like you got like this decade of policy in a year. 
So yeah. it feels it, that feels like a difference from how internet policy uh, unfolded. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really interesting observation because we've we've talked before about how long it takes from a new technology arriving to it being regulated, not just in the internet space, but just generally. It's it's usually a long period of time. I think as you, as you just listed all of those activities, what's what's really interesting to me is in the 1990s, internet and tech policy was for a few nerdy junior members of different administrations. I'll put myself in that camp as a nerdy <laughs> member of the British Parliament in the late 90s, early 2000s. You know, it was me and six other people who were sort of interested in tech issues. Prime ministers, when they, I remember asking a question of Tony Blair and the, and the question was, what's your email address? And he couldn't answer. <laughs> like, like yeah. Uh, yeah, This was not something that senior politicians got involved in. As you talk about the AI stuff this year, what's remarkable is it's gone from being not that interesting to something which global leaders have to have an opinion on. It's, it's done at presidential level, prime ministerial level. Uh, yeah. That's quite extraordinary, really. Uh, it really is. Yeah, even with sort of general internet, even when social media was like, you know, seen as causing all the disasters, we'd still be talking to the interior ministers and people. I don't, I don't remember prime ministers having a social media summit, actually. Uh, it's quite kind of quite an order of magnitude of difference in terms of the attention that AI is getting. And I think it, I think it highlights something else that I've been noodling on, which is that I think I, I think we have to suss out, and this is this is an ongoing process. We've been doing this over the last year. We'll have to do that in the coming years too. And we have to we have to figure out what kind of technology policy is AI, because it's not internet policy. And I think a, a sort of a, an easy mistake to fall into is to think that this is just the same as you know, internet policy. It's just, uh, we just need to sort of have a, a, a basically a framework like that of internet policy. This feels different. And I think the difference is there to be, for us to sort of discover. One of the differences, of course, is that that this, this digs deep into the heart of issues like growth and jobs. You know, how can this reignite productivity growth? What will it do to labor markets? A lot of things around that where, where we, you know, we struggle to prove that the internet was a net benefit to GDP for quite some time, just showing people it's an important growth factor. When, when you talk about AI, most people get that it will impact the economy in a deep way. And I, I wonder if the tie between the technology and the economy is one of the parameters or dimensions that determines how its policy uh, policy landscape unfolds, if that makes sense. I mean, you could be right, but then that does beg the question that were we underestimating the internet and are we overestimating AI? Oh, uh, you know, or are we? have we right-sized them? Um, because if you think about, you know, some of the challenges around the internet, it is now regarded as having destroyed the traditional media industry, for example, something that politicians care about. But but as the internet was growing, nobody was really seeing it in those terms. You're right, a- AI, people immediately are going, this is going to destroy millions of jobs or change millions of jobs. So so question, <laughs> there we have it. Well, did question. we underestimate the internet? Is that why everyone was so slow and, and has been busy playing catch up? And but are we maybe, running too fast on AI? <laughs> well, it's a really good question. And, and, and you know, I think we, we obscure something when we refer to both of them as general purpose technologies, because that's mm. typically what we would say, right? These are, these are general purpose technologies, but maybe they are general purpose in different ways. I mean, the internet had waves of second order, third order, fourth order effects on 
the economy and society. Because what it did at the heart of it was to connect things and people and increase yeah. information flows and access. And, and that was that was perhaps in some ways more subtle, I think. Uh, than... Actually, just as a reflection as well, I think it's internet plus um, that good old-fashioned word, digitalization. Oh, it, is, it is the fact that the media, the content, which is the big bit of the economy people care about, the fact that it became digital content and could be distributed instantly at low cost across the internet. It's those two things together that yeah. were the critical change. And they could have happened sort of independently, but they were happening at the same time. We were digitizing the content initially onto physical medium media, like DVDs and CDs and things. But then you add the internet into the mix, and now you've got digital, no cost of copying, internet, almost zero cost of distribution. And that's the radical economic shift, isn't it? Yeah, and maybe it had, I mean, maybe one of the explanatory factors for the difference between internet policy and the way AI policy is unfolding is the slow growth of bandwidth over time. Because in the mid-1990s, you would have 56.6K and you would be sort of dialing up with dial-up modems and, and that wouldn't allow you to do all the things that you can do today. But as bandwidth increased over time, there was a lot you could do. And if you look at that as sort of capability increase of a technology, uh, that actually took some time for bandwidth to move to where we are today where we where we without thinking about the use video for calls etc there's there's like very little in terms of bottlenecks that stop us now but that took time but if you look at the same yeah. capability curve for ai you can say it, it went from being sort of non-player characters in games that were mildly amusing to suddenly passing the law bar <laughs> yeah and that maybe maybe the steepness of the capability curve is something around the technology as well what do you think that that, that does make a sense yeah in the sense with the internet we were boiling the frog weren't we we were turning the temperature up uh, bit by bit by bit and then at a certain point you're absolutely right it then sort of flipped in terms of its impact on the economy and then i guess we saw that most graphically during covid where where you know, I don't know about you, but I was like, oh, the internet's bound to fall over as everybody switches to yeah. video conferencing and all of that. And it didn't, <laughs> you know. So, and then suddenly we've seen how profound that shift has happened. But but even those who work in the business, I think, had not realized how far we got because it was boiling the frog. It was, you yeah. know, a small incremental improvements every year. You're right that AI, it feels like, and and the debate is framed in terms of there being this sort of, massive leaps that could happen overnight and therefore from a regulatory point of view we're we're assuming that this this thing could happen tomorrow in six months in a year's time and therefore there's a sense of urgency to get ahead of it because we will go from you know uh, a moderate modest capability to you know massive capability in 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 no time at all and so that i think is a different framing for the debate but to your point though there there is a risk here that we overvalue the speed with which that will happen because if you look at technology diffusion patterns they're not just determined by the capability of the technology they're also determined by things like social inertia or you know yeah. the time it takes to change an organization or to, to you know to change the views of the people in that organization and so you're, you're reminded of neil's 
Bohr, who when asked how physics changed, quipped that it changes a burial at the time or a funeral at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. You have to have a generation, it's very crude, but a generation die off before people could adopt the new views. And, and so that, that essentially then gives you a generational perspective where typically what you see, and this is, I think this is borne out by at least a superficial analysis of technology history, you see a 30-year diffusion pattern for most technologies. So if you look at the internet, I think, you know, if you go 30 years back, 1990 to 2020, when we did have this shift for the pandemic, as you described, um, that that was the diffusion pattern until it became second nature in our economies, like a foundational component of our societies, really. And so if you go 30 years from now, um, I think, you know, a lot will have changed with mm. AI. Uh, but maybe it won't change as fast as we think because of those social inertia factors and diffusion dampeners that exist. Yeah, you, you remind me of comments I had this week. I'm working a lot on on health policy, including health tech stuff at the moment. And uh, I was talking to somebody who who, who works in radiology, uh, so looking at uh, scans. And they said, look, there's lots and lots of products already on the market for AI-assisted radiology. Uh, but some of the blockers to deploying them are the fact that the IT people who have to install these new systems are the same people you phone when you've lost your password and they just don't have enough time. So to your point about the social inertia, it may take, you know, years to get products, AI enabled products out into, into places where they should be deployed for no reason other than that there just isn't the, the local capability to install, maintain, and support those systems because people have got to move from, you know, the take their time away from supporting old stuff and put it onto supporting new stuff. So I think I think you're absolutely right. Even where you get a massive breakthrough in AI, you know, arguably the stuff we we saw last year with some of the new large language models. Yeah. Let, let, how many of those are? have gone beyond the proof of concept stage where people have tested them and said, oh God, I can do these amazing things. I could completely change my my business practices. How many businesses have actually changed as opposed to doing the proof of concept? And then they'll put it on the back burner for what, two, three, four, five years while, while their IT team are uh, you know, installing windows and answering other calls before they can actually get around to, to changing their their fundamental core systems. Uh, it's a good point, and it's interesting because if you if you think about what happened with the internet, one possible schema you can imply is to say, look, it took quite a while for internet first companies to emerge, companies that were organized around the principle of internet access and internet communication. Uh, so, for example, an Amazon turns up in I think it's 1996 that they're founded. Mm. And so they founded in 1996, but the internet has become commercial around 1990. It's a six-year lag before you get that. And I don't think, I'm trying to suss this out now, but I don't think I've seen any major sort of uh, business model emerge on an LLM or AI-first principle where mm. you've you built the entire thing on the premise that AI will be readily available for you and should power everything you do. That, that might still be a few years out before we see that happening. Uh, you'll, and you'll sort of, you're, you remember you were in this stage between 1990 and 1995, you were in this stage where, where if you were forward-looking early adopter, you were like, I'm going to get myself a web page. Yes. <laughs> and, and sort of a little bit of that is happening now in terms of the fusion terms where people go like, yes, we have an AI model. Model. So what does it do? It's like, well, yeah. uh, it can answer questions about our customer database. <laughs> so, yeah. which is which is sort of the the almost like the corresponding thing of that early 
we got ourselves a web page thing. So, so maybe maybe they were sort of just at the beginning of something. And if that is the case, to your earlier point, then what will it mean that we set out the regulatory agenda so early and so robustly? Will it be a good thing, or will it actually hold us back? Yeah, I, I mean, my biggest concern is I, I sort of um, see this in a sense. There's a tide coming. And as policymakers, we react and we can see the tide coming in, uh, which is sort of the AI tide is heading towards us. And I think um, part of the problem is that there are probably specific things within that that we're most worried about. Hmm. Uh, And the risk is that if you try and regulate the whole tide, uh, that's unrealistic. You're going to get swept away. If you try to put a breakwater around one particular thing that you really care about, that that must maybe much more achievable, and uh, and I think a lot of the regulation at the moment is trying to regulate the whole tide. Mm. You know, we we are worried about I don't know the you know, top of mind of things like deep fakes in elections. That's the thing that people keep going on about. Yeah, uh, in you know to regulate deep fakes in elections. You could do a lot with electoral law by saying, if you use deep fakes, you will disqualify you from the election. I mean, that's really simple. And it's got nothing to do with AI. It's just it's just sort of going back into election law. That's what I would call a breakwater. That's sort of uh, fencing out a little piece of the landscape and saying we're going to protect that. Um, my worry right at the moment is that because we think it's about regulating the entire tide, regulating all of this AI, yeah. uh, uh, that that's where we'll end up with the wrong regulation because we'll miss the important bits. And I think we've seen this in the past with the internet. When you're trying to regulate everything, you don't regulate the important things, um, which are a much smaller subset of, of the entire thing that's happening. So well, you, you end up with sort of inane debates, like the debates we had about whether caching was copying, for example. Yeah. Or we've spoken about this before, about the sort of electronic signatures directive, trying to regulate when an electronic signature would have equal force under law with a written signature. And, you know, it, it became this, this, this hodgepodge of ideas and technological standards was never really used. And so so I, there is a risk there, I think. But there's also, there's, also, there's also another factor when it comes to AI, which is that this, you know, in, in the internet, we're still the main actors. It's sort of, we are the people connecting each other. Mm. Um, and in AI, there's this sort of, uh, there's this soft narcissism problem, which has to do with, you know, is this thing actually going to replace me? Am I building something that is equally intelligent? Or And, and there's a whole set of questions around AI that I think go far deeper in terms of our soul searching than the internet did. The internet was also... I would note in the 1990s, greeted as an unalloyed good. It was like, yes. this is great. It's going to connect everyone. It's going to you know, bring world peace. Well, our, our expectations were really, really high. And uh, correspondingly now, our expectations are, are very tampered by fears and sort of concerns around this technology. So, so there's something here about sort of com- the comparison of the internet and AI and the hmm. different kinds of general purpose technologies that I think is interesting to, to dig more into at some point. Yeah, that agency point is really relevant because yeah, we never we never said the internet is a killer robot that's going to destroy humanity, uh, but we are saying that about AI now that it you know some people are saying that they may produce the killer robot that will destroy humanity. So you're right, the internet um, uh, both it grew more slowly or was perceived as growing more slowly, and and secondly, it was it was not itself seen as having independent agency. No, uh, you've almost ended up in a situation where you have that with social media, though. You have to say, yeah. social 
media is yeah. eroding democracy. It's, it's you end up in this the internet made me do it uh, perspective yeah. that sometimes comes back. And but that took time. That took like two decades before we ended up uh, essentially yeah. identifying the internet as the cause of many bad things. Actually, again, really interesting because what people say is, and and we I contest this in lots of dimensions, but they they basically say it's the social media algorithms that are destroying humanity, politics, slash whatever. But then they say, and the social media algorithms almost have been hand coded by Mark Zuckerberg and and the like, and Elon Musk. So so we are we are both saying it's the machine. Yeah. But but we are saying that the their machine is being directed by a person and, and most of the sort of vitriol, if you're upset at, you know, uh, the social media platform, it um the, the social media platform can't say, Oh well the algorithm independently did this. No, no the, the, the policymakers, the regulators say there's a controlling mind and the controlling mind is a person. Yeah. Uh, Zuckerberg, Musk, whoever your villain of the week is and and they can be told to change the algorithm. Now that's quite an interesting, interesting difference. The idea there is that there is such a configuration of technology that it will make us good. That democracy ultimately can follow from the way that technology produces discourse. And and that to me is a return to the early internet. Where we said yes. exactly this, where we said, look, internet's going to make you free, open, connect people, etc. And uh, that causal model of technology creates democratic freedom uh, has now been reversed to technology, you know, produces democratic erosion. But in the remedies, we're still wanting to revert back to that earlier model and say, if you just had a better algorithm, or if we had a decentralized system uh, where the technology was in the hands of the people, then the technology could still be a force for good. Whereas, you know, one possible alternative view would be to say, no, actually, you know what, democracy is what we do as individuals. And mm. we have to have some degree of ownership over that because we have agency. And the notion that, you know, the internet made me do it is, is just going to put us in this vicious cycle between internet produces democracy or erodes democracy where the causal pattern is all wrong. And so it's like a really interesting question. Yeah, I think sort of my internet uh, supports democracy. Your internet destroys democracy. So, I mean, again, it's really as you point that out because the other the other sort of debate, which is really a last year debate, but has run on to this year, is the whole Twitter X thing. Oh, yeah. uh, and and you're right there. And then then the original assumption was, you know, well, Elon Musk personally is changing the algorithm and destroying democracy. And if it were somebody other than Elon Musk running the company, it could be made beneficial. So to your point, exactly that. And that the answer, the solution is to go to the mastodons and other places that are decentralized where somehow democracy is stronger. Uh, that's the sort of perception. And that and that is still there. But But curiously, we apply a different paradigm to AI where we don't say, you know, Sam Altman, you know, uh, chat GPT is something, you know, there's a sort of assumption that chat GPT is independent of Sam Altman as a controlling mind somehow yeah. uh, uh, that doesn't apply when you think about the algorithms that are being used in social media platforms. We're applying a different standard where, where once you call it AI, it, uh, there's a question of whether or not you create it. That's that's the responsible responsibility conversation so should sam altman and OpenAI create this thing or not but there isn't the same assumption that the the person who's the ceo of the company somehow 
you know, can tweak every little parameter and thereby change the way the machine works. Uh, mm. that, that is an assumption that is applied to social media very, very strongly. Yeah, and it brings us back to one of the core questions, I think, in, in you know, the philosophy of technology. And we've touched on this before. And, and it sort of it goes to what you actually really believe uh, around technological determinism. Uh, do you believe that technology determines history or do you think that it's a more complex relationship? Or well, what, is, what is your view here? Right. Because because I think um, if you really sort of look at the bare bones beneath many of the theories, you will find some version of technology produces culture, society, history. And, mm-hmm. and that is, is, is far from an established truth. I think it's really interesting to think through what that looks like. I mean, the first naive version is technology produces history. The second one is technology produces history that produces technologies. You get the circle. Uh, but then you can also imagine that, that actually, no, both of these things are produced by something different. They're produced by the evolution of society overall. And a society is produced as a response to the complexity in our environment, which is sort of a third, where both of the things are being produced, none of them is the cause of the other. And and all of these different causal patterns uh, are are interesting to um, explore. I mean, I don't think that one of them is clear cut or like obviously the right one, but we often get stuck in that first one with the singular causal relationship. And that's, that is, that is confusing. It goes for AI, it goes for the internet too, but you know, in different flavors, I think. And and again, I think related to that is this assumption, whether you think that um, humans sort of in their essence change in response to technology yeah. whether you think that that humans rather are quite sort of settled in who and how they are and 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 therefore they'll use the technology they'll respond to the technology in different ways but they're not changing in their essence because of exposure to technology and curiously, I think it's progressives who tend to see technology as more impactful because their view of the world is that humans are improving over time. Uh, whereas there are others, and I would put myself in this camp, who kind of basically believes that, look, the humans that existed 2,000 years ago, the humans that exist today are the same. The, the technology doesn't change them. They're the same. They have the same sort of behaviors, essentially, as they've always had. Yeah. Um, and so depending on which of those camps you're in, again, I think you react very differently, but a lot of the, the negative reaction to uh, uh, internet and AI technology, ironically, as it comes from progressives who often, they're the first to champion it because they believe that um, technology can make humans better. Yeah. Uh, they believe in human change and therefore they're champions for this technology because it will achieve their objective. And then when it doesn't, <laughs> they're the ones who are most disappointed. And, oh, my God, you know, the social media was supposed to save us. And it didn't. And they, they're like betrayed lovers. You know, they've, they've been, they've been let down. By it. Yeah, I, I think that. And if you look back at the early Internet rhetoric, you know, John Perry Barlow, um, independence of cyberspace, same thing mm-hmm. there. We're going to be able to build something new in this new home of cyberspace. Or take Hakim Bey and the notion of temporary autonomy autonomous zones where anything could happen sort of true anarchism was possible and and I, th- I think there's like a there's a there's a really interesting question there about what is your causal schema for technology and society and you know at some point you also have to de- decide where it begins because if you if you're sort of of the school the internet made me do it then you can say well the internet itself was also produced by earlier technology so at some point you have to you have to go full you all know of hariri and say agriculture <laughs> made me do it it was agriculture yeah. that's where it started to go wrong when we did agriculture you know that's the end of human agency and yeah. at that point we're just essentially doing the bidding of wheat 
And so that's what we're currently doing. So, so you end up in, in a really interesting set of questions there that I think are largely unanswered and underpin a lot of both the AI debates that we've seen in the last year and the preceding internet debates. Yeah. And, I, and I'm certainly in the camp of the the, the hunter gatherers, you know, patrolling the seaside for shells prior to agriculture. For me, were exactly the same people as the ones who settled down and grew wheat. Yes. Uh, there was no difference in the people; they're just using different technologies. It's such a good but point. again, you're right. A lot of the theory is somehow we changed in our very essence when we settled down. And and again, there's a there's a the whole sort of set of philosophy around that. I'm people are interested in the John Gray school uh, philosophy yeah, yeah. is probably where I am at, where we talked about sort of humans as just being how they are, always have been, respond to different contexts, but we're not essentially changing. And there, there's both an optimism and pessimism in that Gray is famous for being a pessimist, but but mm. if you think human nature is somewhat immutable to, to external things, and we do adapt them to us and bend them to our will, then you end up in some way actually also arguing human sovereignty, that we sort of determine yes. us in some way which is which is not i mean it's it's nice in one way and a lot of people will object to this but it's nice because i do think that it also gives us the agency to change things for the better um because if you have this very simple schema where technology produces history then you're stuck or you stop yeah. using technology those are your only choices it's disempowering because and again you can see that in the current debate the d- debate is well if i don't control the technology i'm a victim if i don't control the technology yeah, and yeah. given that the technology tends to be controlled by a relatively small number of people that leaves a lot of victims who are who are just being pushed around by it and i i yeah i find that less comforting uh, i guess we're sitting here we have been the masters of the universe to a certain extent the yeah, control no, of technology no, but even then you know Still, but I, I but I do believe it's worth exploring, and maybe you know there's yeah. a good challenge out there, and there's several people who who can think differently about this and say no, we're stuck in this sort of Hegelian Marxist historical materialism schema where technology produces society, and and you know the people who own the means of computation are the people who also determine the future of society, and what we need to do is to revolt against those who own the means of computation. There's this neo-Marxist take on it that's worth exploring for sure. I I, I, I think that the, the case so far has not been made convincingly that this is how things work, nor has the case been made that if this was how things worked, there is a viable path out that doesn't yeah. go via sort of the, the old tried version of let's have a revolution and see what happens. Uh, no, I think I think the only rational, if you if you end up believing that, the only rational strategy to take is go and work in one of the tech companies and get your hands oh, on the so levers of power. That's so Trotskyist of you. It's like we can change the system from the inside. Yeah. No, 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 don't don't change it. Just take advantage of it. No, no. Oh, right. <laughs> Not even change it. Oh dear. No, if you if you get, if you if you, if you can't again, if you, it's immutable that that technology oh, will be in the hands of a small number of people that on yeah. in the other direction, then at that point the the only rational response is, is either be a victim or be a victor and, and get right, into one of the right. Then you're full Hegelian. It's sort of on the, <laughs> the, the ironclad rule of history unfolds without yeah, yeah. tinkering. Yeah, no, I, I think that's 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 both cruel and horrible. So okay, so so leaving so 2023 was the year of Hegelian AI policy. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I like that. So let's move on to the next one. So the next one you mentioned was competition, and it's interesting. Yeah. Competition exists in two different flavors, right? One is 
um, the testing of acquisitions, where we have seen a few really interesting cases where, you know, you're, you're trying to sort out what will the market structure look like if this company acquires that company. And the other is the enforcement uh, against existing uh, arrangements and companies. And obviously, I'm not going to comment on anything that has to do with Google. No. But, but I think but you, you sort of, I think you're right in that we have seen more competition agencies test the waters uh, and understand both of these now. So yeah. what, what's your take there? I mean, they've been brewing for some time. And so so this year, again, we saw um, famously, you know, there was interest in this Microsoft acquisition of the gaming company Activision, and it went backwards and forwards. And it seemed like like they were going to be forced to drop it. And then the, the competition regulators allowed it to go through. And then just in the last uh, week or so, we've heard that Adobe has had to abandon a takeover of a company called Figma. Uh, again, because similar concerns were raised about market concentration, which, which Adobe disagreed with, but ultimately they decided they couldn't go ahead. So, so it does feel like um, a trend that we saw. And I, I was working at Facebook when Facebook acquired Instagram and later WhatsApp, and and, and regulators sort of you know, since then have been going, "Oh my God, how did we allow that to happen?" And so, so they they are now in this business of. Um, really raising concerns, I think, essentially about any large tech company taking over anyone who operates in a similar space. And then the question is, how determined are they? And Microsoft sort of just kept going, kept going, and they got there. I suspect there'll be far more companies that will either not bother with the acquisition in the first place, because their lawyers will say, look, don't even try, or they'll end up you know, backing out at the first sign of gunfire. Um, so I think we are going to see fewer fewer acquisitions. I think that's what the regulators want. <laughs> so fewer yeah. tech company acquisitions. And it's interesting to, to uh, double click on why they want that. So one of the commentaries I read around the Adobe Figma case that I thought was interesting, and I don't know if this is true, but one of the commentaries essentially said, look, what we just saw means that if you're a small company and one of your possible exit strategies was being acquired by a bigger company, you now need to change tack because there's no acquisition exit pathway for a lot of companies anymore, especially not if they're really good at what they do and they complement an existing big tech business in some way. So what does that mean that you're closing off the acquisition exit path for a lot of small companies? How, how will that impact them? And how will that impact the startup dynamism that you've seen in the tech sector? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it will have quite a long pull through. And that was, that was the claim again for something like Instagram. Instagram had built you know, what they thought was a great platform, they wanted to cash out. <laughs> uh, and the best way to cash out was to sell themselves to a, a larger player who who understood the value and could maximize the value. I mean, that's, that's the issue that, you know, it's why you get integrations of companies that are in a similar space, because, you know, Microsoft with its Xbox platform can maximize value that it'll get from buying a gaming company in. Um, so, so you're right. It does leave them saying, "Well, who, who else is going to pay as much money yeah. uh, if it's if it's not somebody who can ex- sort of maximally maximally uh, sort of monetize the product you've built?" You could go, I guess, to some other large company that is trying to build a competing service. So I guess that's what the the regulators maybe would like to see. So, oh, so okay, so you mean. Know, Going to the market leader, but the second to market leader. Exactly. So it's so Instagram instead of getting bought by, but or not necessarily a second market leader, but just somebody with with big pocket, deep pocket. So Instagram instead of being bought by a Facebook 
goes to, well, at that time, a Google, because Google was not that strong in social media, or goes to a Microsoft, you know, that you, you, you can still get a valuable exit, but I say, uh, and you can then go to somebody who would have the resources to create a serious competitor. But, you know, if that were the case, can, how come they haven't done it already? <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. It's like if you're if you're putting yourself in the market, if there's somebody else who, who you know, could take Figma and create a rival to Adobe, which I assume is what the regulators would much prefer, why weren't they bidding for it? Uh, at the time that Figma was putting itself onto the market. Um, mm. And that's the challenge. You know, why weren't other people bidding for Instagram at the same time? I, th- I think sometimes that does happen. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe as the market shakes out, you know, more people will will want to come in on that basis. Um, but I think, as I, said, I think that's the model that the regulators are signaling they would prefer. Um, either mm. the company carries on independently or uh, from a pure competition point of view that somebody else with, with lots of money, but who isn't currently in the space as the market, uh, same space as the market leader, will take them on instead and build them up. Right, right. Well, it's interesting because that then would mean that there still is an exit acquisition path, but you just have to be more circumspect about how you pick your exit partner in some way. So that that in turn means then that, uh, because the commentary I read essentially said, forget about acquisitions and mergers, those are not going to happen mm-hmm. now. Because even if a Microsoft wanted Instagram, uh, the fact that they had so much data, for example, on other things, or you would analyze Xbox as a social network and say, no, you can't add it to Xbox because that's a so. And so you would end up with a general um, hesitancy from competition authorities to allow any large company beyond a certain significant size to acquire any smaller company uh, that could significantly improve their competitive positioning. So this goes back to sort of the reasoning behind competition theory, I think. And it's interesting because there's a, there's a lot of debate right now about whether or not the the question what the purpose of competition theory is is to improve uh, consumer welfare or if it's to improve the overall structure of innovation in the economy which is you know a little bit more fussy but you can sort of if you if you um if you simplify you can say it's sort of is it good for the consumer is it good for innovation overall two different competing perspectives that now seem to be clashing in the competition theory arena yeah i think you're right because um again there is some Quite good theory that would suggest so. Say, for example, Microsoft had bought Instagram <laughs> rather than Facebook. As an advertiser, you would now have to have a contract with uh, uh, Microsoft to get to Instagram's users, and still have a contract with Facebook to get to Facebook's users. And there's some quite good theory that suggests that that would end up being more expensive, actually, from an advertiser's point of view, uh, as opposed to going to Meta. And, and by the way, those costs would be rolled over on consumers would be there. Uh, exactly, exactly. So your classic consumer benefit isn't necessarily scared. If they were looking at it, they would say, look, which, you know, is the is the Instagram plus Facebook in the same family model going to deliver cheaper advertising? If so, we should let it go. Or... Uh, are we looking for some other benefit, which is, you're right, from an innovation point of view, we think we'll get more innovation if Microsoft develops Instagram in a different way from the way in which Meta would have done it, because Meta will naturally sort of converge its products uh, as opposed to somebody else who might diverge the products. But yeah. but you did raise an interesting point. I, I say my assumption has been that what competition authorities care about is big plus in the same market. If all they care about is big, we don't want big to acquire small. Uh, 
whether or not they're in the same market, that's a different game. And you're right, that really would shut down the exit routes. Yeah. Um, uh, so again, I think that's something maybe we'll see play out over the next year or so. Uh, is is it just big can't buy small, or is it big can't buy small uh, if they're in a similar market space? The big can't buy small, I'm sort of going to argue against myself, actually, that played out to a certain extent in, I think, Meta were trying to buy Giphy, they were trying to buy a, yeah. a GIF maker. And there, that's it. that logic of blocking that seemed to be much more big can't buy small, yeah. uh, rather than that there were necessarily, you know, that the market for gifts was so fundamental that this was going to cause uh, chaos. No, and, um, I, and I think this is interesting because I think what we're, we're sort of looking at here is, is, is competition theory trending into Brandeis theory. So Justice Brandeis was one of the justices of the Supreme Court, but he was also a lawyer. He wrote a lot about market structure. And, and generally, Brandeis theory, if we simplify, was that at a certain size, the size itself becomes detrimental to society when a company reaches that size. So having companies that are too large, not too big to fail, but just too large uh, or too powerful in some other dimension is bad for society. So you want to curb possible company size. And I think if you look through the popular discourse and debate and the political sort of positioning on, on uh, competition theory, there is this tension between competition theory is an instrument to improve something, where it's innovation or consumer welfare, or competition theory is something that is put in place to ensure that we don't get entities that are too large so that system so systemically uh, they create a problem for us because if you reach a certain size, then you're you're not going to have a generally good impact on the system. So, so curbing company size would be like a, a, then this tension. If you if you sort of if you look at all of the political debates around big tech or you know indeed big pharma or whatever you want to look at, right? I think you will see that there's this tension between the functional perspective and competition theory and the structural perspective, where sort of competition theory guarantees a market structure that's overall beneficial to society, and and I don't know where that's going to land. And no. I think right, that's probably a 2024 thing to track very closely. Yeah, there's also, I think, a you know, political dimension, just to loop us back to, to the conversation we were just having. I mean, some of it is, you know, big companies, particularly in the internet space, are powerful. And, mm. you know, they're politically so powerful. It may, it, you know, the economic angles, but there is an argument that goes beyond the economic. And you hear this again around social media companies. The problem with them is not necessarily framed in economic terms, but it's just that if if one of these individuals changes their algorithm, that itself could have significant political ramifications. And therefore, the fact that they are big and have a lot of users is the problem. <laughs> whether or not they're economically efficient, whether or not they're delivering for consumers, forget all of that. We're just worried because they are big and powerful. Uh, and that's a very different ball game. And then you, you might try and retrofit some kind of economic theory onto that. But really what you're trying to solve for is a political problem or perceived political problem, which is we don't want any individual to have that much power in society. Oh, and I, I think that's such a good I, a good perspective. And I think maybe that's a 2024 thing that what we'll see is, is the return of or the further exploration of power as a central concept in the discussion of technology. Because we've, we've shirked from power. We've talked about transparency. We talked about uh, misinformation, which really isn't a problem unless there's misbelief. And so yes. it, but what if, what if at the heart of all of this, if we sort of just 
push aside and we look at what's the heart of it, what if what we're actually debating is this question, this core question of power? And I wonder if, because power is, is, is a controversial concept, people tend to shy away from it, but as an analytical instrument, it's really uh, uh, quite helpful to think in terms of power dynamics. You can go full Foucault and you can sort of look at all of the power dynamics in the field. And I think you're right. That maybe 2024 is the year where we see the return of power as an analytical uh, tool to understand the influence of technology on society. Yeah, and I, and I think the proof point, right? Yeah, I mean the proof point may come in one of our other trends we picked up, which is we said, look, this year the European Union, the UK, have finalised their regulation, their digital regulation, Digital Service Act, Digital Markets Act, Online Safety Act, which I spent a lot of time on this year. And yeah. next next year is when when they start to bite, and that's when we will see. I mean, you, again, you you think what's the logic of that regulation? That, that is governments taking power back from the companies. That's the way yeah. the governments see it. They yeah. see it as look, you companies, you have had the power to make decisions about things that affect the lives of our citizens. That's not acceptable. <laughs> Uh, and we are by creating laws that that empower regulators, our albeit independent, normally independent creatures, but they are creatures of government. We are empowering regulators now to tell you what to do, uh, and so that is you know it's a, as naked a power grab as you you could get, yeah. which is to say we're we're regulating to take power from you companies and give it to us government slash regulators, and then in. The, you know they've they've made the grab this year. The power grab has happened. I was part of it. We've power grabbed in the UK, and we've said, Ofcom, you can now tell all these tech companies anywhere in the world. By the way, not just British ones, but thousands of thousands of tech companies around the world. Ofcom, you now have the power to tell them what to do according to our instructions. Uh, but you must tell them what to do according to our instructions. 2024, the rubber hits the road, and we'll see. Do they? Do they ignore Ofcom? <laughs> do they do they do what Ofcom says? And Ofcom says jump, and they say how high? Uh, do they just go la 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 and pretend that Ofcom doesn't exist? And same for the European Commission. I mean, it's going to be fascinating. Do they challenge it? Do they drag everything through the courts? Mm. Um, so we're going to see that power dynamic play out at least in the sort of core platform space across the UK and the EU uh, in 2024. It's going to be could be fun to watch. And it's it's true because implementation. We all we, we often use that rather uh, sort of bloodless word, implementation of legislation, right? Where you have to implement it and we have to do compliance, etc. But what's really at the heart of that is the negotiation of power dynamics. You're right. Yeah. So to some degree, 2024 will be this this sort of at least the start of this major renegotiation of power balances across a number of different technology fields. And, you know, as we also implement the AI Act, the executive order, G7 principles, also those different things, those negotiations are going to exist at the same time and probably inform each other in different ways. So the way to approach your sort of thinking around 2024 might be to say, look, I think 2024 is going to be a negotiation of power between different actors in society with regulators at the heart of striking a new balance uh, as to who decides what for the internet, but also ultimately at the end of the day for other new technologies like AI. And we have seen a brutal version of that in crypto, which sort of to my second point, where yeah. we've seen a very fast renegotiation of power around <laughs> currency to, you know, yeah. and renegotiation that, that sort of was speeded up, I think, by 
by some of the questionable practices that we have seen laid bare as well. So, so to, to, to me, that's, that's sort of a, that's, that's a really interesting observation. And that's I, a really good, yeah, I mean, it's a really important connection to make. Because when, when we talk about negotiation, it's a very one-sided negotiation if one party has the full force of the law behind it and can imprison the other party if they refuse to cooperate. Okay. And you're exactly right. In crypto, that's what we've seen. And the reason that that is so brutal is that we have this very well-established financial regulation that gives these very, very significant powers to regulators. Uh, and we've got individuals who have fallen foul of that. And the negotiation is, you know, you will come and if you plead guilty, you'll get a short sentence. And if you don't, you'll get a long sentence. But there's no world in which you could just carry on doing what you're doing. It's a, it's a very, very one-sided negotiation. At least if you talk to my community of policymakers, they think that's what's going to happen in the rest of the online services now that they have the DSA, DMA, Online Safety Act. And, and I don't think people on my side think this is a, a friendly negotiation. It's going to Elon Musk and saying, this is how you are going to run Twitter slash X. And, and your choice is run it the way we tell you to run it or get out of our market or defy us and go to prison. I mean, it's like that's the that's the terms. It's going to be as far as they see it, like the negotiation between the uh, um, federal uh, U.S. federal uh, financial regulators and the crypto companies, um, and we've seen where that goes. That's interesting. I wonder. I mean, I, the the sort of the possible pushback you could imagine there is saying things like, "Well, the the object of regulation in financial regulation is incredibly well defined, and you know there are mechanisms that you have to be able to produce. You have to show how you're leveraged. You have to sort of currency have to be balanced. There's a, a set of compliance processes that are really well worked out that you have to abide by, and there are many things you that are sort of established things you can't do. So financial regulations had they, they've grown this over the last century perhaps i mean it's it's the the framework have been built over a long time which means that the, the when you actually push with the full force of the law there are points to push at very clearly identified i wonder if they have emerged yet in internet policy or on content policy or social media policy uh, or if what we need is sort of if what we'll see in 2024 is the emergence of of theories of enforcement yeah, I mean, I think we're we're at version one, but certainly philosophically, if you say, you know, what does what does does this legislation look like? What what can you compare it with? I actually think financial services regulation is the closest. It's about you know doing risk assessments. It's about demonstrating that you've mitigated those risks. Uh, the risks are seen as direct harms to individuals, maybe not financial, but in but comparable harms. And, and the responsibility is on the company to protect their consumers from those harms. And so you're, I think it's version one, yeah. but the philosophy is absolutely, I think, comparable with the philosophy of financial regulation. Uh, you must keep your customers safe, even when the customers are doing stupid things. That's not, that's not an excuse. Uh, you must keep them safer than even they are asking to be. Uh, uh, otherwise, you're in trouble as the platform. Yeah, no, that's that's certainly something to keep your eyes on in 2020. Mm. So uh, we're um, uh, getting closer to to the mm. end of our, our conversation. So let's talk a little bit about elections. So yes. 2024, uh, I think I read somewhere that more than 1.8 billion people are going to the polls. 
uh, we have a set of enormous elections. How do you think elections is going to impact tech policy, AI policy, policy generally in 2024? What's your yeah. sort of what, what's your take on that? I mean, what we've learned is that anything that affects politicians directly. Uh, it you know is is like a minefield for tech companies to go into. It's just so sensitive, and things happen, and they just they just sort of you know become massive stories. Uh, I think quite incoherent, and I think there's a risk that the responses are misdirected. So you're right. So I think I think lots, everyone's already talking about it and going, oh, what about AI deepfakes? This, that, the other. Um, I'm, you know, this is our podcast, so I can say what I like. Yeah. I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I'm pretty blunt about this. Look, look, the real problem, and I am one, the real problem lies with the political campaigners. They are the ones who are most motivated to do the bad things because they want to win. And that's, you know, I've been there. We're all there. You all push it to the edge. The only thing I think that stops bad behavior in politics is uh, that if you are, as a campaigner, scared because you think you're going to get disqualified or go to prison because of something you did in the campaign. And so I'm pretty blunt that what I worry about is I have lots of regulation directed at the tech, but none at the politicians. So just to use a, and I could do this on our card, a drugs analogy is almost like, it's almost like we're focusing on the people who, if you think about just focusing on the deep fake people, we're focusing on the people who grow the marijuana we're focusing on the people who smoke the marijuana, but we're not worrying about the marijuana dealers. And in my analogy, the marijuana dealer is the politician. They're the ones who have most to gain by, like, you know, pushing out and promoting That's all of this stuff. That's tobacco right there, rather than But you know what I'm saying? It's like, uh, um, and in this case, it's the dealers who have the power of making the laws. So of course they're not. But but if they just spend the whole time regulating the platforms and regulating individual users, you know, really... If someone creates a deep fake in an election campaign of you know, one of our political leaders here in the UK, that becomes dangerous if any of the parties either overtly or covertly start encouraging it. Yeah. The best way to, to, to really get rid of it would be the moment the deep fake appears, all of the political class say, this is ridiculous, no one should repeat it, we're going to squash it, we're going to shut it out, that's just outrageous, and we all agree that that is unacceptable. And the way you get them all to say that is by making clear that if they don't say that or, you know, and they sort of tacitly encourage it, uh, they're going to get caught and they're going to get disqualified. So I'm I'm like there on election law. Let's make it, it. There will still be people outside your country who are still messing around. Of course, there will. And you've got to have some mechanism for that. But in my experience, the bad stuff in campaigns becomes dangerous when the main players often tacitly start you know encouraging it uh, and distributing it and giving it authority and if all the main players you know walk away from the bad stuff and say it's unacceptable actually that really is the best inoculation there you go have my rant end of that's year rant. that's a good rant i've insulted everybody that's good. Excellent. Yeah. So, so let's wrap it up by, by, do you have any new year's resolutions, by the way, anything? Uh, to... Yeah. Is... I, so, well, I, I will say this cause I, I am spending a lot of time now on technology as applied to the internet. 
And um, I, again, I was talking to some people in, in uh, sorry, as applied to health, technology health. as applied to health, technology as applied to healthcare. I was talking to some people who said, look, they, they're surveying people who are leaving the British healthcare system. And the number one reason that this community gave was the bad IT. Mm. Uh, and and it's just, you know, it's 20 different systems. If you want to know how bad it is, you go into any UK hospital and you see screens with 15 post-it notes around the screen with all the passwords for the different clunky systems they have to log into. And uh, so my New Year's resolution is I would like to spend next year uh, uh, at least contributing to the goal that the technology that people use to either deliver or receive healthcare in the United Kingdom should start to be as good as the technology that we use to share cat videos. Like it feels to me, yeah, that's a goal. So that's probably a, a multi-year goal, but that's uh, that's the thing I am most fired up about 2024 because it's, it's just so frustrating. Healthcare is so critical. Uh, we have this wonderful technology that we, we spend our time talking about every week and it's not being used in that critical sector because it's what they buy. I mean, they've just got crap. And they shouldn't have crap for something so important. It's again, it's, it's like technology diffusion. It's really interesting to see how technology diffuses in different ways in different societal sectors. And so, I, yeah. I think that's a good point. Well, that's and, that's, your, and yours, Nicholas. What's your what's your resolution? Oh wow! Um, I, I I feel I can't go after yours because you're going to make healthcare <laughs> better. So what can I say? I mean, it's really hard. I think. I mean, if I have a resolution, it's probably that I, I would I would like to continue building industry standards around yes. AI. I mean, one of the things I've been very much involved with and interested in is this notion of sharing best practices, making sure that we reduce the information asymmetries between the industry and public sector, and that we sort of continue to work in order to create this shared understanding. And that's that's sort of something that I'm, I'm, I think will be really, really important as this technology continues to become more uh, capable. So that's one of the things I, I really want to spend time on. And then on a personal level, I think I... I, th I think these technologies actually are really interesting in giving us an opportunity to learn more and learn mm. faster. And one of the things I really want to do in 2024 is to structure the way I learn better. Um, because I, I'm a bit of a, I'm, I'm sort of, I cobble things together. I'm a tinkerer. I learn a little bit here, learn a little bit here. And I think this technology actually allows you to really read deeply into even very technical subjects and learn very fast about things that are so fascinating. So I want to, I want to find a way to structure learning, which I think is, is sort of mm. on a personal level, my my ambition for 2024. So you're going to fix education. I'll, I'll try to fix health. Okay, you fix education. You do health, I'll do it. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> Sort it. <laughs> okay, very good. Well, thank you for this. And thanks everyone for listening in, during 2023. Uh, we will be back in 2024 with um, much more because I'm pretty sure that neither technology nor policy will go away. And we thank you for listening. You can find this podcast on Richard's website, which is www.regulate.tech. Thank you so much and have a happy new year.